everyone. Thank you for staying for today's film forum. I'm Julia Wong with the City Club of Cleveland. Um, and this is our fifth film forum of the 43rd Cleveland International Film Festival on Trust Machine, the story of blockchain. So a little bit about today's forum. In typical City Club fashion, we will have uh, about 15, 20 minutes of moderated conversation with our, our moderator, and then about 15 to 20 minutes of question and answer powered by all of your questions. So begin thinking of any questions you've had from the film, and we'll have two people with microphones that will go up to you and for your question. So a little bit about that. Um, please allow our mic holders to hold the microphone. We are recording for a podcast, so that allows us to get the best sound. Um, please stand up so we can see where you are, and please also actually have a question. There's a lot of you in the audience, and I'm sure we have a lot to talk about, so we ask that you keep your question short and to the point and to also not have any follow-ups. This allows for as many people as possible to be a part of today's conversation. So tonight's question is, will blockchain change the world? And leading tonight's discussion is Ideastream's own reporter and producer, Rick Jackson. Rick, I turn the forum over to you. Thank you, Julia. Wow, you are forgiven for feeling like you brought a shot glass to a tsunami. A lot of information there. I am Rick Jackson, senior host and producer, IdeaStream, moderator of now a half dozen different panels on blockchain as Cleveland moves to become a major player in this new technology, even a hub here, we could imagine that. To shorten the defining process, let's use a brief. Blockchain is a digital ledger of transactions that operates across what proponents claim to be a highly secure, decentralized network. To explain decentralized, if we were, I wouldn't be here. For the next few minutes, we'll look into the truth or the deception of that statement. We'll talk about the documentary, then we'll open up the floor to your questions about the process. With me are three panelists. Adam Gall is the Chief Technology Officer of Topaz. Pete Moore is a PhD, Hannah Professor of Political Science, Case Western Reserve University, and Brian Ray is a Professor and Director of Cybersecurity. Joseph C. Hotstetler, Baker Hotstetler, Professor of Law, Cleveland Marshall College of Law, Cleveland State University. Heck of a title. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> Adam, I'm going to go ask you to explain to folks what Topaz is and does. Sure. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Topaz is a data attestation service at its core. So we're all blockchain experts now. Um, Bitcoin uh, is a timestamping machine at its core. It's a distributed ledger of transactions, and each one of those is timestamped. Um, so what Topaz is, it's, it's a way for anybody to use the power of a decentralized distributed timestamp server to lock data to a certain point of time that can't be changed. So uh, Topaz is a, it's a product offering that allows anybody to tap into that value without needing to know how to hold or use cryptocurrencies. We deal with the Bitcoin and the Ethereum, and we let you send fingerprints of data to us, and you get it into these decentralized systems. Um, so that, that's at its core what it is, and it's just we're trying to bring these these value adds to the world. So why should we embrace or why should we fear this whole idea? The idea of blockchain? Of blockchain. Uh, I think that they are pretty revolutionary new systems that uh, need to be embraced more than feared. Um, it took me a couple of years of learning and understanding to figure out how they work and what they're capable of, and then they become less fearful once you understand them. Um, 
Brian, we heard one of the people in the film say, we're trying to stop the abuse of power. Do you think blockchain could upend centralized power on the net? So I, I'm skeptical of the big scale promises of true decentralization, either of governments or even of major power centers like banks. Um, I absolutely think that blockchain has the potential to disrupt industries in dramatic ways like the internet did, but I think it, it's already, we're already seeing an arc and we're gonna see a continued arc like the internet of the 90s towards centralization. The banks have already uh, started to, to, to co-opt and create their own systems. Th that said, I, I think there are real possibilities for real change, just not, not on that dramatic of a scale. Pete, we talk about this upending. Does it actually require a lot of trust from folks who don't want to give up the power that they maintain? Oh, yeah. No, if you have power, you don't want to give it up. I mean, that's sort of the, the core of, of politics and, and human life. And I think that one of the interesting things about this documentary I found is that, on the one hand, there is sort of an attempt to talk about the politics of this, but there's a lot of questions. And I felt that, um, for instance, like decentralization for what? What does that actually achieve? Um, I can think of a lot of things in political and historical life. Some of our greatest advancements were not advancements of centralization. I, I'm not really happy with that term. I would call it collective action, people working together to change the world around them. And although I think there was a, a sense of that, like a hopefulness of that, w w you know, which I found very optimistic, I thought a lot of it was undeveloped. Um, and so I had a lot more questions about what is this conception of freedom where we think of freedom simply as uh, I get to do what I want, right? Lack of barrier to action is another tradition of freedom, which means the ability to be free. Um, and I think that's eminently a much more uh, deeper political question. And, and it does go to the heart of whether or not something like this, which is ultimately a technology, has the capacity to change the world, uh, either in a political or a social uh, way. So the technologists don't want to admit that we may need regulation. What do you think? Do we need some kind of regulation at some point? And I'd like the, all of you to weigh in, actually. So, so as, as the lawyer on the panel, I'll jump in real quick. Um, <laughs> what, what, what was happening was actually a, uh, a refusal to recognize that existing regulatory frameworks may well apply in certain ways. So actually I was just on the phone uh, with, with a lawyer who's very active in the space who, as we were trying to put together a course program, and I said, well, uh, what about ICOs? And she said, well, there's no such thing as an ICO anymore. So, um, it, it, and which, which is just a short way of saying, well, we figured out that in fact financial uh, regulations apply when you're raising money. Um, so th there, there's definitely need for new kinds of regulation or evolution of existing frameworks to deal with one of the core structural questions around Bitcoin and blockchain that was raised there, which is the fact that tokens always inevitably operate as a form of currency and money because they have value, and yet also, if the system is designed well, have a functional role to play within it. And our current regulatory structure just isn't very good at, at dealing with that that hybrid structure. So we need to figure some workarounds, uh, but we've got plenty of regulations that apply because you know that's what keeps me and my students in business. Pete, given those limitations, do we need some kind of regulation, no matter how small? I don't know. I mean, I, uh, 
I gotta say that I, I, I don't know enough about this to, to make that argument. I mean, it could be that the regulation's there, it's not being enforced. I do think, though, that the point that governments uh, will try to regulate this is, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think that uh, things that like this that fall in a hybrid sense uh, that are also transnational, um, I do think governments will, will go after it. And I would, the last thing I would say is that some of these problems that were identified, particularly some of the problems in the developing world or in the Zaatari refugee camp in Jordan or uh, Venezuela, some of these problems can be solved not by regulation but by maybe, for instance, fulfilling international law, right, around human rights uh, and the status of refugees. So. Um, there are other potential ways to solve some of the problems that were identified here uh, above and beyond uh, a technical fix. Adam Gall, you'd probably want to push back and see less regulation. Well, I, I'll take the non-committal view on this as well. I think that obviously regulation will happen. Um, I think that no matter what, it shouldn't happen in a way that you know limits exploration and growth of, of these new types of systems. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a capitalist at heart and I'm building things that are you know, trying to be centralized services built on top of these decentralized systems, and I'm working within the U.S. regulatory framework as well. And you know, I I want my company to be safe, so I'm I'm fine with regulation, but it you know it needs to be well thought as it happens. This whole idea in the film uh, Ponzi scheme or scam, it's got to scare you that people would toss that word around an industry you're trying to build. Oh yeah, most of it is for sure. Um, I think that uh, it's it's so misunderstood still that it's very easy for opportunists to come in and you know use a lot of big words that that are long and sound funny and and take people's money and uh, take people's Bitcoin I think that there's there's certainly a, a, a root of truth and goodness to what's going on here um, but you know be careful out there it is the Wild West it is the Wild West Brian early on we heard about the Silk Road scandals and how many people were, were defrauded there or lost what they had invested. It's got to scare you from a legal point of view that people are out there really giving away their hearts and they don't have protection. So so just to distinguish between the two, the Silk Road was um, what, what's still going on, which is cryptocurrencies are the coin of the realm for illicit activity. And uh, what, what the criminals haven't yet figured out, and I was just talking to our U.S. Attorney um, rep who's in charge of the dark web project, uh, which sounds like a great job. It, it's actually very easy to trace, <laughs> and so it doesn't work quite as well. But in terms of the scams that were out there, I mean, what happened was at, at the core of, a, of blockchains that are public, there's a token, right? And a token, as I said before, has value. And so there was this gold rush as, as Bitcoin went up. And so it was like the internet in the 90s on steroids. It was as if every internet startup also had a currency that you could invest in and hope would make lots and lots of money on. And so that's what led to these scams. And some of them were, were trying to make fun of it. The Dogecoin was actually a joke. And both because of the speculative possibilities, people, and because it was funny, people invested in it. And so that, fortunately, there's been some shake out of that, right? The crypto winter has uh, put a chill, literally, on, on that kind of activity. But there's always that risk where there's something you can invest in. Before we go to the audience, I wanted to talk a little bit about Cleveland, the idea of making this a hub. and. Pete, I guess I'll start with you. The whole idea, we've seen the Bernie Morandos of the world talk about how it can be. We had this great conference back in December where people came literally from around the world to Cleveland and talk about it. Are we on the right path? Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I, you know, I love my home. I don't want to be I'd want to see more investment, right? Like, we got 
how about roads? How about our schools? How about education? How about job training? How about the old things that we don't do well anymore? I'm not saying that these new ideas are bad and we should ignore them, but I do get a little worried when you know, I'm told that this is, this is the road to salvation and we all have to get on board. And um, I think our community needs to be heard from in a variety of ways and I'm, I'm sure there's other ideas out there that should be pursued both with public funds uh, as well as um, incentivizing private investment. Adam, can we be a leader and, go ahead. <laughs> Well, there's, there's an opinion. So Adam, can we be a leader and not rush headlong into this and, and not watch ourselves? Yeah, this is a tough question. Um, you know, I think that along with investment uh, in traditional, you know, Cleveland things, Cleveland infrastructure, that, you know, seeing investment in technology projects would be the way to be a leader here. Um, I don't know how easy it is for tech companies to raise money here. It's it's traditionally pretty tough. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. I wish we had a filmmaker here to ask about it. It was very frenzied as you watched the movie, watched the film there, to get the idea of what's going on. But the whole industry really is a lot more stable than what we just saw. I pose that as a theoretical question. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I don't know. I, it seemed to me a lot of Silicon Valley, right? I mean, it seemed to me almost like an archetype of what you would assume that type of, of, of business leader is. Um, I wonder if there's more out there than, than a single documentary was able, to, was able to capture in that sense. I, I mean, Adam can best address this because he's at working and making a living in the space, but I would just add and connect to the prior question that a lot of us involved in the blockland movement, and I even hear, heard Bernie admit it once or twice, you know, viewed blockchain as sort of the sexy poster child that represented a set of digital innovations that are, that are clearly coming and already here and at various levels of maturity from AI to IoT um, to, you know, HoloLens and various other things where we are already leaders in many respects. And so uh, I think there was a, perhaps an overemphasis uh, and it didn't help that Bernie's, uh, you know, decided to invest in blockchain. But for, for many of us, our perspective is, hey, blockchain's really interesting. It's, it's, you know, a generation or a generation and a half away from being mature in the way that many of these other technologies are. But definitely Ohio uh, and Northeast Ohio generally, uh, we need to figure out how we can embrace and if not be a leader, at least be, you know, part of the, the pack that's moving towards these technologies. But I, I would suggest Adam can tell us about what's going on for real. Can I just ask a quick question? Who, did you mean Bernie Sanders said that? I'm, no. I'm just wondering, it didn't sound like him. Who did, did you say you Bernie? Uh, Bernie Moreno once said when we, when oh, several oh, of us. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was thinking, um, I had some, you know, National Pot. I thought that was. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm deeply local. Bernie <laughs> Sanders sounds like that. That was weird. Go ahead, Adam. I don't <laughs> think he came to Blackland, but maybe we should have invited him. Um, so, you know, my, my view is very much just one of a builder. Um, you know, I've been running a, a programming-based consulting agency for the last couple of years. I've built lots of code for lots of projects that are still around and don't exist anymore around the world. Um, I've been running a, a local community meetup group uh, called Crypto Cleveland that's you know grown to over a thousand members in, in two years. Uh, I've been building my product company. I don't know, I, I try not to get too involved in the, in the marketing hype of things and just build stuff. And I think that's probably the best way to you know, build an ecosystem. Thank you all.
I'm betting in the audience we have investors, we probably have some builders, we probably have some neophytes who stumbled into the wrong movie. So you can ask the questions as you would like. We have microphones in the audience, and look at that, hands shooting up all over the place. You can, yeah, go ahead. Go first on the left here. Uh, yes, just considering that there's been a lot of different organizations like Kodak, I guess, tried to get into a blockchain a few years ago and didn't really work out. Um, is there is there an inherent contradiction in trying to centralize and build a business off of a technology that's whole premise is decentralization? And how can Cleveland actually make any money or, or headway or progress in that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question and a very astute observation. And it took me two years to figure out what a product looks like. Uh, to, to build that does that, and it turns out I'm, I'm trying to build stuff on top of Bitcoin. Um, you know, I'm, I'm using these existing decentralized systems that, that have inherent value and incentive mechanisms built into them and, and trying to make them easier to use for people and tap into some underlying value that they provide, such as you know, a, a timestamp server, aside from the value transfer mechanism that it's built for. Um, so I, I think that's a yeah, great question. Um, it takes a lot of thought to sort of work that out in your head about how to how to centralize on top of decentralized systems. And if you're trying to build a decentralized blockchain like Bitcoin, but a, a, a copy or a clone of it, and you're doing that in a centralized way, you know, I look sideways like what's the point? Just use a database. Next question. Uh, yes, hi. Um, what area do you see in the blockchain that will have the most impact or the first impact that we would see widely across the United States, whether it be in the medical field, financial, uh, in that. And then my second question is, um, how do you see digital value becoming widely ex uh, adopted going forward? Julia said you couldn't have two questions, <laughs> just, just <laughs> checking. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll jump on that. There we go. I'll jump on the first one. I mean, we're, we're already seeing it in the financial industry, and they, they've been way ahead. Of course, Bitcoin was built, as the movie pointed out, uh, primarily as money exchange. So that's, that's going on. The, the other big areas are um, supply chain, and this is where you see the interaction with these other technologies. It's really supply chain with IoT, right? You've got to have the data loaded, and then blockchain becomes a, a, a better database because of its trust capabilities and because of its auditability and various other things. Um, and, and to the earlier question, just real quickly, most of the major applications, I mean, Adam's experimenting in the startup space, but at the enterprise level, are done on, on permission blockchain. It's really Hyperledger, uh, which is, some would say, maybe not a blockchain. It's, it's a sophisticated database with blockchain attributes. But, so it's a little bit different. Out there. Hi, um, I'm Alex Pimakis, Create Sigma. I am a human filmmaker, by the way. I had a question about the economic impact of Blockland um, because I'm part of Blockland Cleveland. I'm working to create some uh, a movie company powered by Blockland uh, blockchain. But I find that there's like a disconnect between people who don't know how to code, don't know how to do things. So I can see the technology people being benefited from blockchain, but like the normal people, like just regular people, like Amazon creates jobs. So do you see blockchain creating jobs? here in Cleveland the same way that an organization like Amazon.com create jobs? Well, hopefully Topaz grows to be able to hire a thousand developers. That would be great. Um, 
Yeah, again, that's tough. You know, all of the developers of, of Bitcoin and Ethereum are, you know, self-funded. There's not really companies in the middle that are paying them to do that. They they happen to be early adopters who are now rich off crypto and can fund their, themselves to keep building these systems that, you know, gave them their wealth. Um, so, yeah, that's, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that it's still pretty early on and... You know, there this arc is still happening, and who knows what you know a decade from now is going to look like in terms of what people are valuing in a blockchain system. But traditionally, these these open public blockchains have very mel very much been like bootstrapped, self-funded people giving their own time and volunteering to help build them. Um, unless you unless you're trying to build companies on top of them, and yeah. Let's ask the poli sci professor. He talked about five, ten years. We have a change in government. How would that impact something like block land slash blockchain? Um, well, I mean, I think it has a lot. I mean, a lot of this documentary was, uh, you know, the, 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 the state was in the background a lot. The state was a bad guy. Um, and so, so clearly, despite um, kind of hope for a different future for the foreseeable, you know, I mean, the, 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 the most important actor is the state, sets the regulation up. Um, and in particular manages this transnational linkage, which was sort of the arc of the story of, 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 of the individual that was arrested in the UK. I mean, that was, that, that was a political issue between the US and the UK. That not, uh, so his extradition or not uh, had a lot to do with whether or not uh, a state and a, and a political entity would line up behind it. But I think this question about uh, equality and asking the question of who benefits is really important, right? I mean, whether we're talking about the global oil market or we're talking about uh, this particular technical form of currency, that's the really important question that needs to be answered, who benefits. And to the extent that everyone will be involved in this is, again, a collective issue that, that can't be ignored. I mean, some of, some of these examples in the developing world sounded very interesting, but I also wondered about what about the th millions that are, not that are not coding, that are not part of this? How do they benefit? And it's something we've seen in Cleveland history, whether it's the Opportunity Corridor or wind farms in the lake, there are always people who are saying, it's going to leave me out. So this is just one more element to that. Question out here. Yeah, uh, um, the the coin mining they talked about in the in the film. I was I'm a little fuzzy on is that a threat to Bitcoin's um, integrity, or is it? And if it is, is there a, a solution to stop the the coin mining? To clarify, are you talking about the energy usage? No, the people that were doing this are they are they like stealing something from Bitcoin no, or no, are they dirty? they are active builders of the blockchain. Okay. So all of those miners that the you know that the movie talked about are people who are actually adding new blocks to Bitcoin's blockchain. It happens to be every ten minutes the network is changed by a, a new block being added to it, which is just another set of transactions that are being confirmed onto the network. So. It, it is that building of the network which is decentralized. Anybody can choose to run some hardware to participate in building this blockchain, um, which is then distributed around to everybody who's, who's partaking in it. And building the blockchain is what makes new transactions confirm. It is what sends value, transactions just send Bitcoin between some addresses. Um, and there's a reward for adding a new block onto the blockchain. So that's why people do it, is every new block right now uh, adds 12 and a half new block or Bitcoin into the system. 
um, started at 50, and then four years after that, it got cut to 25, and four years after that, which is where we are now, it's at 12 and a half, and that'll eventually go to zero, um, which is where the 21 million limit comes from. So people are incentivized to mine Bitcoin because they get money if they find a block, and it's really hard to find a block. It only happens in the world once every 10 minutes on average. Um, so no, those people are not, they're not, hurting the system, they are the people who are actually helping and building it. It's, it's, it's positive. If all the miners went away, Bitcoin would stop working. I think part of maybe what he was asking too, we saw the number 1,300 for a number of cryptocurrencies. Ah. Granted, the movie is a year and a half since they've done the production, but maybe is there a finite number to how many cryptocurrencies we can have before it just all falls apart? Uh, no, th th those are all separate networks. Okay. So uh, I guess there are nuances there, but in general, each one of those 1,300 cryptocurrencies would have its own blockchain, and they would have their own set of miners building on it. Um, so j just real quick, the, the genius of, the, of Satoshi Nakamura was to say, hey, we need an economic incentive for other people to bother to use processing power to record other people's transactions when they have no stake, and that's what the mining is in the coins. And then a lot of these newer cryptocurrencies are built on top of Ethereum, which is that more complicated chain where there's an internal economic. So everything you want to do that's a blockchain application, you want it to be decentralized. You want to incentivize people to participate. You create a mini market, and the tokens drive that market. That's sort of the fuel inside of it. So to take one example, there's a version of Reddit that's called Steemit, where instead of uh, liking it by just liking it, I've got to expend my steam, right? And then that's how the people who post things get paid and there's a little internal market, right, which creates accountability and various things. But in order to do that, there's got to be a token out there that, that we can distribute and play that game. I still have cassettes that I replace with CDs that I don't listen to anymore. Is blockchain going to be like that? <laughs> and, this, and the cassettes still work. <laughs> so, <laughs> some of the tokens will. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Next question. Uh, the question I had was as far as regulation, uh, I hear a lot about net neutrality. Uh, now, I've heard net neutrality being two things, that the government's trying to control the Internet, and all I hear is that, no, that we're not controlling it. We're adding new infrastructure for the speed to increase, so therefore you get to pay a premium so you get faster Internet. And so I've heard both of these, and I don't quite understand exactly what net neutrality is. Uh, just two seconds, because it's not—it's—it's it's a little bit to one side of what we're talking about. But net, net neutrality, the term of art, was used to represent a regulatory regime where we were going to treat the in major internet service providers like utilities, and they couldn't offer differential pricing. In essence, the argument, the the counter argument that's been put forth as the FCC abandoned net neutrality is precisely what you articulated, which is well, no, we need that kind of differentiation to be able to create a you know a capitalist market around this, which will incentivize expansion and ultimately get better internet for everybody. But you know, which you believe is sort of depends on where you stand. Okay, I'm one of these neophytes, but I'm actually here by choice. Um, but uh, this is going to be you. really basic. I don't understand how this value works. Like you, you say you're mining this Bitcoin, you create more blockchains, and then where are you getting money or where are you getting value or wealth, and how do you spend or use that value and wealth? Like I know with cash or money card, I go, boom, I pay, I get something in return. So could I know it's pretty basic. Could you explain? Explain that, please. Yeah, I'll try. So, uh, we need about two hours, though. 
gotten good at this. Um, so people choose to value Bitcoin. Um, it is just a personal choice. Just uh, People choose to value Bitcoin for a number of reasons, uh, one of which is that it's uncensorable and permissionless, so you don't need to you know, give your details to a bank to open a bank account. You can just download an app on your phone and start using it. Um, they also choose to value it because there's a, there's a limited supply of these tokens that will exist in the world. So there's 21 million Bitcoin that will exist. So there's scarcity built into it. Um, and I guess that you know, people choose to value the fact that as this system becomes more well-known in society and more well-adopted, that uh, if demand goes up, then the price against you know, more stable assets like the US dollar has to go up because we can't increase the supply. Um, so a lot of people are, are buying and holding Bitcoin right now because they see it as a speculative investment. In the Venezuela model, they said there can't be inflation. How could there not be? It's because of the decentralized network. Um, all of the miners and everybody using the software are, uh, are agreeing on a set of rules. And, and like I said earlier, one of those rules right now is that every Bitcoin or every block produced today creates 12 and a half new Bitcoin. If some miner presented a valid block to the network, and, and in that block, they rewarded themselves with 13 Bitcoin instead of 12 and a half freshly minted Bitcoin, then the rest of the network would see that block, look at it, and say, hey, uh, there's 13 Bitcoin here, not 12 and a half, not valid, and they would discard it, and then that miner, using all of their electricity, would have done that for waste because nobody would have accepted it as valid. So um, it's, it's just people agreeing on a set of rules in a big, wide network um, that, that allows these limitations to get put in place. So the bigger the network, the better, the more secure. Um, these big public networks, I think, are, the, are you know, the most secure types of networks. And that's where the security comes from, the size of the network. It's not the technology itself. It's people agreeing on rules. And if there's enough people agreeing on the same set of rules, then any one person trying to change those rules will have no voice. And, and there's an actual limit on the total number, right? So um, you can't print Bitcoin, and there, there will only be um, 21 million. And, and all the other tokens that get put out are, are based on that scarcity model. And so, I mean, a real simple way to think about it is it's, it's as if you, you could go to Dave and & Buster's and, and live there um, and then trade the coins around to do lots of other things. But of course, to get into Dave and & Buster's and to get the coins, you needed dollars. And that's essentially you know, how the tokens work. So once you're in the system, you can trade them around and do lots of things and trade for other ones. But at some point or another, you need what they call fiat currency to get in. And often, you want to trade back to fiat currency to get out. And that's where some of these um, the exchanges and other things operate. And, and to sort of give the optimistic future view there, like how, how do you use Bitcoin um, you know, without dealing with, with fiat? Well, you would download an app and have somebody send you some Bitcoin. Um, it's just, it, you know, there are apps that do this stuff. You have an address on your phone or your computer, and people can send Bitcoin to it. Um, if, you know, if you're buying something in the real world, some, some goods or services, and the person you're buying it from accepts Bitcoin, then you could send that Bitcoin to them. Um, I think the, the optimistic goal there is a circular economy where you can pay your bills in Bitcoin and receive your salary in Bitcoin. Um, you know, who knows if that will happen? But, but I, I think this issue is interesting because this, this is where I get really nervous. This is where I'm wondering where the democracy is because inflation, like hyperinflation is bad. 
But inflation can serve excellent public good ends, just like going into debt. It's like, what are you going into debt for? Are you going into debt to invade countries? Or are you going into debt to make investments and things like this? And so I guess this idea of establishing rules and then moving forward becomes problematic because democracy is about debate over rules. It's debate and changing those rules. And if there's not a mechanism in this system to address the basics of what power is, and part of power is making rules, I'd be very worried about a system that sets the rules and then moves forward, and there's no ways of bringing public, broad-based social accountability into a system. That, 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 would, be, that would be a worry I would have. No, no, and you're absolutely correct, and, and governance is a huge issue because there actually aren't hard and fast rules around how to change the underlying software in Bitcoin, for example. So there have been huge sort of fights, and the, the standard is consensus, which is undefined. And so it's, 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 but it's early days, and it's astounding that the system worked at all. It's because somebody had to make a bet and say, hey, you know what, I want Bitcoin to be worth something. And there are great stories about somebody spent 100 bucks, I'm sorry, 100 Bitcoin on pizza. Because it was a game, right? And now they're kicking themselves even at it. was 40,000 Bitcoin on two Oh, pieces. was it 40,000? Okay. <laughs> well, either way, it was a, crazy was a lot of money of even at today's rates. Yeah. But, but the governance issues are huge. And absolutely, consensus is not, uh, it's, it's certainly not efficient. And it may not be a functional model for large-scale human effort. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I also just, that's the way it is now. I think that the cat's out of the bag. The uh, Bitcoin's never going to change. Um, I, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and, and also, yeah, it's, the rules can't be changed. There's too many people involved in the system now. There have been too many attempts to change it so far. It's one of these anti-fragile systems where attacks against it seem to make it more resilient to attacks in the future. We will have to leave it there. we got uh, basically eight minutes to clear the room. <laughs> I want to thank Adam and Pete and Brian. I want to thank all of you for being here. Drop your Bitcoin in and donate to the CIFF. I'm Rick Jackson. Thanks so much for being here.